Welcome to Expound, our weekly worship and verse-by-verse study of the Bible. Our goal is to expand your knowledge of the truth of God as we explore the Word of God in a way that is interactive, enjoyable, and congregational. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. Mark, chapter 9. It's a chapter that last time we were together, before I went to Lebanon, I, I purposed in my heart to finish with you, and I didn't get to finish it because I wanted to just go all through chapter 10. But because we're taking the Lord's Supper tonight, it just seemed appropriate to slow down, finish chapter 9, and then take chapter 10 as a chunk next week when we're together. Why don't we pray? Father, for us to hear how you have moved in the lives of rebellious people and how patient you are and how your love extends to the depths, we take heart. Because right now in our minds, though maybe that's not our experience, we know somebody That is their experience. I pray, Father, that we would be prompted, emboldened, that you would set up the opportunity for us to share the hope that can be people's by trusting in Jesus. And now, Lord, for this time together, rid our minds and our hearts of distractions, of thoughts, Lord, that are not edifying, that take us away from what we're here to be about. And I pray we would be consumed with your story and the celebration of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been waxing a bit nostalgic the last couple of weeks, and here's the reason why. Uh, For my birthday, I was given a book by one of our assistant pastors uh, on the Jesus Movement. It's one of the first academic books put out by, I think it's Oxford Press. And it's filled with research about how the Jesus movement started in the San Francisco Bay Area, worked its way down into Southern California, swept across different parts of the nation. And it's very interesting to me because I lived through part of that. And so my mind went back and I started thinking, and, and one of my fond memories is soon after I came to know the Lord in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I went back down to my home in Southern California, I did one motorcycle trip on one day uh, in the blazing sun from north to south, came back with a sunburn, and went to a Bible study in a Christian commune. And I remember this Bible study and how filled with love it was and how I was received by people, even though I, I only knew one or two people in that Bible study, but how refreshing it was and compelling it was. And all of those kinds of memories have been filling my mind the last week, the last couple of weeks. One of the memories I have of those earlier days is when we took communion in a commune. And um, being raised in a formal church, a formalized church, where communion was done by somebody with robes and a collar, with incense and candles, to be now in a Christian commune in a more informal, relaxed and yet a very reverent setting made a great impact on my life. 
I really, really enjoyed getting together and taking the Lord's Supper. So when we moved here and we had a group of people together at a local apartment complex and it started growing and I announced that we're going to be having communion in a couple of weeks, I went out the following week to buy our first communion tray. All we needed was one because there weren't that many people. I don't know, 75 people, but 50 people. So I got a communion tray and I just thought, man, we've arrived. We're we're a bona fide, real church now that we have one of these babies. You know the communion trays, they kind of look like like hubcaps on an old Mustang. That's how I, I viewed it. And I just thought, look at this is awesome. We're for real. And I've always enjoyed gathering together for the Lord's Supper. So what we're going to do is look at some verses where we left off in chapter 9 and examine these things before we take the Lord's Supper, because I think there's some nuggets in. Now let me just begin by saying before we start reading these verses, I am amazed that our Savior spoke these words to a general audience children included, because there's some pretty tough things that he had to say. There's some hard things that he had to, that he had to share and people had to hear. But it was a general audience. There was men, there were women, and there were children. In fact, if you look at verse 36, it says, He took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, let me just give you the quick background of this occasion. Jesus' own disciples had been arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. So Jesus said, whoever's the greatest among you has to act like he's the lowest among you and to be your servant. Then he picked up a child in his arms. And he used this little child as an example. Now, it's curious to just ask who this child might be or who this child may be related to because back in verse 33 it said when they had come into the house. If you have your Bible, you can look at it in that verse. They're back in Capernaum, and they go back in the house. Now, typically, this refers to Peter's house, where Peter lived with his wife, his family, his mother-in-law, and Jesus stayed so often. When they are back in Capernaum and in the house, Jesus picked up a child. It could have been Peter's own child. It's just an interesting thought. Now, I I have no idea what Peter's child would look like. I just sort of picture a a little three-year-old with a beard, kind of a hefty little guy, you know. (laughs) And I know that's probably, well, I know that's not what it looked like, but it's what comes to my weird mind when I think these things. The word for child is the Greek word paideon, which means a little child, a toddler. And I love it. I love watching children relate to the Lord. Don't you? Don't you love the simplicity of a child when it's time to pray? I love watching my grandson pray. He just knows. He folds his little hands and he bows his little head, and he'll mumble a few things, and he'll say, Amen. Sometimes he'll say it before the prayer's even done, just, Amen. 
But I love the heart of a child, so simple, so open, so totally and utterly dependent. And Jesus took a child and used the child as an example. And he says, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, verse 37. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. In that verse, it's like a metaphor of faith that you become humble enough like a child to receive Jesus because you have to do that to enter the kingdom of God. You have to be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that's really our background. Verse 42 to the end of the chapter is what we want to look at before we take the Lord's Supper. Jesus speaking here. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Keep in mind, this is a general audience. And I'm sure that little child in the house or the other little children, maybe Jesus was still holding on, was kind of like, mouth was open, like, whoa, that was heavy. If you're a parent, there's somehow, some way you can relate to this. As a dad, when my son Nate was growing up, whenever anyone took a special liking to him or showed attention to him, displayed love to him, it warmed my heart. But on the other hand, I was always annoyed with anyone who wouldn't love my son. Because to love my son is to show respect and love to me. That's how it is with parents. That's how it is with God. God loves it when we show respect to His children. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Do you remember that scripture? I'm sure you do. In Zechariah chapter 2, where the prophet says about Israel, whoever, whoever touches you, touches the apple of God's eye. Remember that scripture? Have you ever thought about what that means? The apple of one's eye, it's the cornea. It's that that clear covering on the front of your eye. That's the apple of your eye. So if you mess with God's kids, it's like poking God in the eye. How does that make you feel when you attack another Christian? It's like poking God in the eye. Whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. Do you remember when Saul of Tarsus was coming down on the Damascus road and he was entering Damascus and he was knocked off his beast or he fell to the ground, whatever it was. Some people make a big deal about that. Either way, Lord got his attention. And Jesus spoke to him. And do you remember the question he asked? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, here is Saul of Tarsus on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians, to hassle Christians, to persecute Christians. But evidently, Jesus takes that very personally and says, Hey, dude, you're persecuting me. Why are you persecuting me? That, that arrested him when he heard those words. 
You mess with God's kids and you are messing with him. And notice what he says. Whoever causes him to stumble, scandalizomai, scandalizo, it means to bait a trap, to cause somebody to be enticed or to fall into sin, to influence a person into sin. Jesus said it would be better to tie a stone around his neck, throw him into the sea and drown him. That's very mafia sounding. That's like saying, case the guy in cement and throw him into the, throw him into the drink. When he said that, those who were listening to him knew exactly what he meant because the Romans had actually done that from time to time as a means of capital punishment. They would tie a stone around people, throw them in the, wa- in the water, in the Sea of Galilee, or in the ocean, and kill a person. And the word that is used here for millstone is the upper millstone. Literally, the millstone of a donkey. It weighs a hundred pounds. It's the upper stone that takes an animal to turn to grind the grain underneath it. Pretty heavy duty. You go, what does this have to do with communion? Hold on to that thought. Verse 43, it gets worse. Remember, general audience, kids included. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, about that time, Mrs. Peter's going, Honey, run along to your room. It's getting pretty hot and heavy in here. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall not be quenched, where, quoting Isaiah, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life lame rather than to have two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Any normal person reading this, or in the case of the disciples and the original audience hearing this, would immediately think, that's gross. That's gross. That was the intended effect. Just as it grosses you out to think of somebody cutting off their hand or feet or gouging out an eye, sin should gross you out. It is such an offense to God that the only remedy was to send His spotless Son out of heaven to bleed and die a painful death. And when you look at the cross, you see that's the extent to which God was willing to go to save me, to put all of that punishment upon Him so that I wouldn't have to face it. I'll give you a little historical note. One of our early church fathers named Origen from Alexandria, northern Africa, Egypt, Alexandria, Egypt, in reading this verse, had himself emasculated so that he wouldn't face what he thought he wouldn't face, lustful temptation in his flesh, because he thought that was the only only means to do it. 
Though he took this literally and had himself castrated, emasculated. But listen, you can be minus a hand, minus a foot, minus an eye, and be totally neutered and still be the most libidinous, materialistic, selfish, and prideful person in town because it's a matter of the heart. And because Deuteronomy 14 prohibits the removing of an appendage, that's not what Jesus is speaking about. He's not saying go out and and actually cut off your hand or actually cut off your foot or actually gouge an eye out. The right hand or the right eye or the right foot in Judaism always represented the best. I'm sorry for you left-handed folks, but those are just the stats. Between 75 and 90% of the world is right-handed. So because of that fact, the right hand or the right eye or the right foot is considered the best. It's the arm of strength. It's the foot of strength. It's the dominant eye. That's just metaphorically how it's used. So here's the idea. The eye represents what you see. The hand represents what you do. The foot represents where you go. There are places you have no business going as a believer. There are activities you have no business doing as a believer. There are pictures you have no business seeing as a believer. Even if it's painful, even if it hurts, you must get, even if it inconveniences you, you must get rid of those things in your life. Nothing is worth any kind of separation between you and God, and certainly nothing is worse the absence of God using you as His instrument. Get rid of it. Gouge it out. Lose it. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul said, I discipline my body, lest having preached to others, I myself would become disqualified. So what do you do when you're tempted? What do you do when it's right here? Why not just turn the other way and walk away or run away? Oh, but that's so rude. Well, imagine Joseph when Mrs. Potiphar grabbed him and was very bold and said, Come to bed with me. The Bible says he turned around and, and ran, and she was still holding his clothes. So he literally streaked out of the house, I imagine. But he got out of there. He could have thought, Well, this is an opportunity for me to witness to her. Or, I don't want to be impolite. For me, just to turn away from my boss's wife may not be a good thing. He immediately, instinctively, spiritually thought, I'm out of here. Nothing is worth this kind of temptation. So he cut it off. Verse 49. Then we'll tie it together. For everyone will be seasoned with fire. And every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good. But if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Now, I want you to notice a contrast between two things, between two verses, verse 48 and 49. Look at verse 48 where it says, And the fire is not quenched. And then compare that with verse 49, For everyone will be seasoned with fire. 
In verse 48, it's the fire of punishment. In verse 49, it's a different kind of fire. This is the fire of purification. Now, these two verses are... um, are enigmatic. They're difficult to understand. They're difficult to interpret. And and that's why I've noticed that most uh, commentaries, commentators that give comments on the Scripture just tend to bypass these verses and say some little lame thing and then move on. But here it is, and we're left with what it means. Well, the Jews had a saying. They said, the world cannot survive without salt. That was their quote. Here's what they meant. Salt was important to them for two reasons. It was a preservative, number one. Number two, it was used in a sacrifice in the temple. Number one, a preservative. In those days, there was no refrigeration, um, no ice houses, no freezers. The only way to preserve meat was to take salt and rub it into the meat. Rubbing salt into the meat would stop, retard, slow down the putrefaction process and allow you to keep it for a while. That's why all the the meats back then were very, very salty because you had to rub salt in to preserve it. So it was used as a preservative, a cleansing agent. Number two, this was especially important to the Jews, it was used in one of the sacrifices in the temple and before that the tabernacle. In Leviticus chapter 1, we're told about the burnt offering. You remember when we went through Leviticus, we discussed that. The burnt offering was an unblemished um, bull or a ram or a bird that was wholly consumed on the fire and salt was sprinkled on the fire of the altar of sacrifice as that animal was totally consumed for the Lord. So salt was a preservative and was also used for sacrifices. Let's apply this. Paul says to us in Romans chapter 12, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body as a living sacrifice, holy or totally, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I think the idea behind these two verses is that of the life of discipleship and the sanctification or purifying process as we walk through this world consecrated to God. You and I are to be, as believers, totally surrendered and consecrated to God and to God's purposes on this earth. Once you get saved, once you've been bought with a price, the blood of Jesus Christ, I got a newsflash. You're not your own, the Bible says. You've been bought with a price. Remember when Paul wrote that? You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. When you surrendered your life to Christ, when you invited Christ in, you gave Him the pink slip, the owner's certificate. You own me, Lord. You're the boss. You're the master. What that means for you and I is that when Jesus tells you to jump, you don't go... I'll think about it. Or you'll go, well, it depends how high. No, you just say, yes, sir, how high? He's the Lord. You're bought with a price. Now, if salt loses its savor or its flavor, it says, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. 
as your life is lived being consumed for God's purposes, as it says in Romans 12, as hard and painful and purifying as that is, you're going to find that you become a preservative in this rotted world that you live in. I think one of the only things that's holding back the absolute, undiminished judgment of God in this world and in this country is the presence of God's people. That's where His mercy comes in toward us. We are preserving the evil onslaught that is all around us. If we're not doing that, we're really worthless as far as God's purposes on earth are concerned. If we're not consumed with His glory surrendered to his purpose, and doing our job and staying back that course of evil. What good are we? So that's, that's the end of chapter 9. That's the end of the narrative as Jesus gave these hard words to a general audience, including kids. Now, I want to close by giving you three overarching principles to apply as we take the Lord's Supper. Number one, be purposeful about entering heaven. That's overarching principle number one. Be purposeful about entering heaven. Notice that three times Jesus said, it's so important that you enter into life, even if you enter in maimed, rather than go to hell. Getting to heaven in any condition is better than going to hell in your best condition. Be purposeful about entering heaven. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his own soul? See, that's what the cross is all about. The cross of Jesus Christ, that very event that we celebrate here tonight, taking the Lord's Supper, is about this truth. No matter how maimed you are, no matter how broken up you are by this world, no matter how chewed up and spit out you feel, you come just as you are. He's been looking for you, as we heard in the testimony. He will receive you, and by His grace and mercy, He will use you. Come as you are. Be purposeful. Make sure that is your priority. Am I right with God? Be purposeful about entering heaven. Principle number two, overarching principle number two. Be careful how you treat the fragile faith of young believers. Jesus said, you know what? Get a millstone for some of these folks. It'd be better. Because there's few things that disturb Jesus more than somebody hindering the impressionable faith of a young believer. I think of all those college professors, some of whom I sat under, who made it their aim to undermine my faith, to undermine your faith, or false teachers that try to hinder or lead people astray. The principle is that we must be very careful how we treat the fragile faith of young believers. Which means, on a practical note, that though I'm a believer and I have freedom in Christ and we love to tout the fact that we have liberty and we can sort of do whatever we want and that's who I am before the Lord. That's just who I am, man. Don't judge me. You know, we, we love that kind of personal liberty. Paul said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things build up or edify other, other people. So there are certain things I won't do simply because if some young believer sees me doing it, 
it might entice them to do something against their conscience before God. Let's just imagine that every now and then I get a hankering for a good old scotch whiskey and a cigarette at the local bar. Now I'll just say right off the bat, I never do. People ask me, do you drink? I drink as much as I want. I don't want to. So that's over. But let's just say I have a hankering to do it. And I say, well, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. Yes, but then let's say you're walking by and you've struggled in that area of alcoholism. And you take a double look and you look inside and you go, hey, that's Pastor Skip up there at the bar. Having that drink and smoking that cigarette and getting sort of a little loose around the edges. <laughs> Honey, you wouldn't believe who I saw tonight at the local bar as I walked by. It was our pastor. Now maybe deep inside you felt this was wrong, but suddenly by seeing my example, I've emboldened you to sin against your conscience. In the name of liberty and freedom, I haven't considered you. It's not very loving to you. I should think through my actions as how that would be displayed, what that would cause others to think. So be purposeful about entering heaven. Be careful how you treat the fragile faith of young believers. And overarching principle number three from this section, be influential without being hostile. Be influential without being hostile. The end of verse 50 says, have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. The reason Jesus would say have peace with one another is because the disciples just had an argument about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. That's why he had to bring the child up, use the child in his example, then launch into this diatribe and share what we've just read. Have peace with one another. These disciples were getting salty with each other in their speech. I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. Jesus said, have salt in yourselves, but have peace with one another. In other words, be separate from the world, but don't be separated from one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, be holy, be separate, be individual, be bold, be holy, all that stuff. But don't be puffed up with pride so as to be separated from one another. Be at peace with one another. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called children of God. We have to try. Even though it's not received, and I can just tell you from personal experience, there are some people you try to be at peace with no matter what you do. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. You can try, and the Bible says that you should try, but the Bible also says it's not always going to happen. Romans chapter 12 says, If it's possible, be at peace with all men as much as lies in you. I'm glad it's said if it's possible. Because I've tried to do it with some people, they'll have none of it. They make their own stories, their own narrative, it spins out of control. But do your best, do your utmost to bring peace between brother and sister. So to sum it all up, with this whole thing about cutting off and, and cutting your hand, your foot, gouging, etc., be tough on yourself, but be tender with others.
Be tender with others. You're going to have to set up regulations and restrictions to honor God in this world, parameters of what you'll see and what you'll do and where you'll go and what you won't see or do and where you won't go. In that case, be tough on yourself, but with others, be tender. And as much as lies in you, be at peace with all men.